All right, we'll be in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 39. And if you are new with us, welcome. Each year at this time, we turn our attention to the Christmas story. And in many ways, the Christmas story is somewhat like a photo album of Jesus' earliest days here on earth. And sometimes we'll look at Matthew, other times we'll look at Luke. But every time we look into this old, old story, we're encouraged both on the human end of the faithful obedience that we see in the characters of the Christmas story, and we are certainly amazed at the wonder and the greatness of our God, the God of Christmas. And in many ways, this passage allows us to look at both with stark detail. Because we begin here in verse 39, and we see this interaction with Elizabeth and her uh, cousin Mary, and then we break forth in glorious song from Mary herself. Let's go ahead and take a look right here in verse 39. It says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, that would have been a journey of about 50 to 70 miles. It would have taken about three days, and it would have been a major trip, particularly for a woman who was now with child. And when she gets on scene, look what happens. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, so the baby she's carrying, John the Baptist leaped in her womb. Now, a couple things to notice here. First of all, do we have any reason to believe that Elizabeth knew that Mary was pregnant at this point? We do not. And so this is one of those examples where a fulfillment of prophecy has taken place. Back in Luke chapter 1, verse 15, we are told that John the Baptist would be filled with Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And I believe this baby on board response to Jesus within Mary shows us just that. And look what happens at the rest of verse 41. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So when you take all that together... We get our first principle today, and that is that much like Mary, Elizabeth provides a great example for us to follow. I think she's an example in her own faithfulness to God of walking out this process through her own miraculous birth, but she's also a great example in the case of humility. Look back at how she responds here. She's not jealous that she didn't get to carry Jesus. She's thankful just to be a part of the process. She's glad to play her part in God's story. Reminds me of what C.S. Lewis once said. He said that a true test of character is how we respond when someone around us succeeds. And Elizabeth is certainly an example of that. Humility on her part, rejoicing for what is happening on Mary's part. Now in response to this, look what happens and begins to happen for the rest of the passage in verse 46. And before we dig into the details, I want to tell you a couple of things about it. This passage is often called the Magnificat. That's the first word in the Latin manuscript, which means to enlarge. And the way to think about this 
is that it is a story uh, or it is a section of text that magnifies God. And there's two different ways that magnification can happen. You can take something that's very small and you can blow it up very big. That's magnification like a microscope. Or you can take something that's very large, like a planet, and through a telescope, you can magnify it so it makes it so you can see it. This is that kind of magnification. Taking something, albeit someone, God, who is huge and beyond our grasp, and magnifying him and lifting him up and showing us his greatness. Now, I'd also encourage you to pay attention to the fact that this passage is filled with Old Testament concepts and phrases. One commentator said that there's at least 12 different Old Testament passages that are cited in this passage. And I think that tells us something about Mary's personal faith in the God of the Bible. Because even though she was probably likely or illiterate herself, she had been in a family that believed and loved the God of the Bible, and she had heard these stories and these recitations throughout her entire life. And so the time comes when she is squeezed and she is pressed, and even though she's excited, she has to be concerned. And in the midst of that moment, all of this scripture comes out of her. Now, I don't want to give this its own principle tonight because we talked so much about it last week, but that aspect of Mary's life is truly exemplary for us as well. To be so filled with scripture that it just comes out when she's in this situation, it says something to us. But what I want to focus the rest of our time on are the particular aspects of God's character that Mary highlights. Let's look at it here in verse 46 and following. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. And she tells us two things there about this God of Christmas. And that is that he is both Lord and savior. This word Lord here, the way that it's used, uh, the way that it's used here, uh, R.C. Sproul is a help to us. He talks about this, that when it is in not all caps here, this is talking about the title of God, not the name of God, but the title. And it talks about who he is and what he's about. The fact that he is the owner, the boss, the sovereign, the sovereign ruler over all of history and creation. One way to think about this is that God can do whatever he wants, wherever he wants, with whomever or whatever he wants. He is Lord and Mary proclaims that. She also talks about the fact that he is Savior. It means that he is the rescuer, the deliverer, the hero. And that is important for us to pay attention to for a couple of different reasons. Number one, because it's such a, a pointer to the gospel of what Jesus has come to do. But it also shows us something about Mary. And this is an important distinction, kind of like the one we pointed out last week from what Roman Catholic theology would say. Their doctrine would say that Mary herself had to be sinless in order for Jesus to be sinless. But that's not what the Bible teaches, and this is an evidence of that. Because for her to proclaim that he is the Savior shows that she herself recognized that she needs a rescuer as well. But part of the wonderful news from this passage is that this 
God will save anyone. Any man, woman, boy, or girl that turns from their sins and puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter who they are, doesn't matter what they've done, where they've come from, or where they're headed. That salvation is open to anyone who would turn from their sin and trust in Christ. Now, look also here at verse 48. Because she said, this God who is Lord and Savior has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Now there's another translation of this that, that, that says he was mindful of the humble estate of his servant. I found the <coughs> work of Alistair Begg a help to me here, particularly this week on this passage. He has a great little book called a Christmas Playlist. And he talks about this particular passage and he says here that concept of being mindful means to take thought or take care in keeping remembrance of something. So what he's saying is that Mary is magnifying God because he has remembered her. He has been mindful of her situation in light of everything that she has going on. When he, she says here this humble estate, it could be that she's saying, well, he knows where I live, but I think it's much more than that. He's saying, he knows my story. All the ins and outs of it. He knows our poverty. He knows the, the destitution in which we sort of live. God knows that. And he is mindful of it. And I think that leads us to our next principle here. That the God of Christmas is mindful of his people. He's mindful of Mary. He was also mindful of Abraham. And this some 2,000 years later from when he gave the promise that we see recorded in Genesis chapter 12. Now Mary is singing of that same faithfulness, that mindfulness that God has had. It's right in line with what we see over in Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. And friends, this is really good news for us tonight. Because sometimes we can believe the lie that the enemy likes to tell us. And we can begin to believe, or at least feel, that the Lord has forgotten us. He's forgotten our difficult situation at work. He's forgotten our very real health crisis or struggle. He's forgotten the financial difficulties. He's forgotten the difficulties of chronic pain or with wayward children or dysfunction in some area somewhere in our sphere of influence. That the Lord has forgotten that. But what Mary says is no. He has looked upon my humble estate. He has been mindful of all the ins and outs of my story. And friends, we need to hear that for our own story tonight. This is a revelation of the greatness of God to us. Again, Alistair Begg is a help to us here. He said, this is what God is like. He is mindful 
He is personally involved with humanity. He has promised to make blessing, fulfillment, and security available to all the peoples on the earth. The greatness of God is not revealed in isolation from us, but rather in his intimacy with us. We tend to think of greatness in terms of isolation. The more money you get, the longer your driveway. The more security fences you put up, the more guards you hire. But God is the opposite. His greatness is revealed in his drawing near to us. He knows my name and he knows yours. He knows what you care about, the heavy weight that you carry, the quiet disappointments that gnaw at you, the concerns that keep you awake at night. He is mindful of you. Friends, let's hear that gospel good news tonight from Mary's proclamation that he is Lord, he is Savior, he is mindful. And this God doesn't just know everything. She also says he can do anything. Look at this. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So the fourth point is that the God of Christmas is mighty, holy, and merciful. And this word mighty that is used here means strong, mighty, and powerful. And the way she specifies things here, he hasn't just done great things out there somewhere in the cosmos. He's done great things for me. She makes the general personal. And if she ever questions or wonders about what God might be up to, she can look straight across the room and she can see her cousin very much advanced in years, and now she's carrying this miracle baby as well. Certainly, certainly that would have been an inspiration and encouragement to Mary. It should be to us as well. And beyond that, looking through the Old Testament on a regular basis, reminding ourselves of some of those great stories of how God parted the Red Sea to save his people, how he took Gideon's very small army and led them in victory. How he took Joshua to go out against the Canaanites. From Genesis to Revelation, we have one long story of God's might revealed on behalf of his people. And Christmas gives us another opportunity to take a look at that again. But she also says here that he's holy. He's perfect. He's spotless. He's never done a wrong thing or had a wrong thought. This concept of holiness is actually the only attribute of God that is listed three times in succession in the scriptures, underscoring its importance. It's what we see Isaiah highlight when he sees God in Isaiah chapter 6. Some call this his chief attribute. There's a great story from church history. Martin Luther talks about this. He was on a path to be a wealthy and gifted lawyer. God got a hold of him. One night, some lightning bolts involved. If you are not familiar with that story, I would encourage you to Google it. But he makes a radical life change and moves from lawyer to priest and eventually pastor and so on. And the anecdote is that when he comes up to give his first mass, he's doing okay through the first part of the service. His, everybody's there. All the people are watching. His prominent father is there. And then when it comes time to give the Eucharist, Luther completely freezes. Totally chokes. 
If you've ever seen the movie version of this, he actually spills some of the communion wine on the floor because he's so terrified, which is a huge no-no, particularly in that tradition. And people, of course, come to him afterwards and they say, why in the world? How did this happen? What happened to you in that moment? It was going so well. This was his explanation. He said, it happened when I was supposed to say the words, we offer unto thee the living, the true, and the eternal God. And he said, in that moment, these words, when I was about to say them, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of an earthly prince? And who am I that I should lift up mine eyes and raise my hands to the divine majesty? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. In that moment... Luther got it. He understood the greatness, the might, the holiness of God, and he was rendered speechless. And friends, that's part of what makes grace so amazing to us. Because we're way worse than Luther, I'm sure. Far less informed about the things of God, and yet the same grace has made its way to all of us that are in Christ tonight. And we who were once far off have now been brought near. We who were once aliens and strangers have now been made sons and daughters of the holy God. We who have no righteousness, no standing on our own before him have been offered friendship with the divine through Jesus. And Christmas reminds us of that again. That this God who is mighty, this God who is holy, is also, as we see in the next verse, merciful as well. Look at this. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Fifth point. The God of Christmas is strong and he humbles the exalted and he exalts the humble. Now, what he's doing here in this retelling, Luke, of the words of Mary, is he's showing us through what's called anthropomorphic language some concepts that we can get our head around. Now, that big $3 word basically means that we are speaking about God in humanish terms in ways that we can understand these concepts. The strength of his arm. God doesn't have arms in the sense that we do. But we all understand what strong arms mean. They mean victory. They mean power. It's the picture of a warrior going out with a strong sword arm that can vanquish his foes. And what does he do? He scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And this would have been a reminder that every king that thinks he is in charge of the world really isn't. That God is ultimately sovereign over all things. No despot in history is ultimately in charge. And he humbles those who are proud. And by converse, raises up those who were humble. Mary would have known this. She would have remembered 
some of these stories. She would have seen these things in her life, and it would have been, again, a comfort and an encouragement to her. It should be the same for us. Because we see people in this life that look like they are getting by with everything. It looks like the evil are winning. Ecclesiastes talks about that. We looked at that here. But in the final analysis, when everything is weighed out, God has the final word. And he's strong enough to back it up and to make it happen. And you can't look at this and not think about Jesus, can you? Because isn't that part of the beauty of Philippians 2? That when Paul is extolling the greatness of Jesus, he says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus humbles himself. But what happens after that humbling? A great exaltation. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, that's the way God's kingdom works. It's upside down. Those who should be exalted end up humbled, and those who are humble end up exalted. And if we're going to live inside of that economy, and we're going to flourish inside of that economy, it requires that we trust God. That we take the long view. That we know that in this life there will be questions that do not have answers. There will be equations that do not ultimately pencil out, but on the final day, they will because of who God is and how he works, <coughs> which leads right in to the last thing that Mary says here, that he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. He has helped to serve in Israel in remembrance of his mercy, and as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. So sixth and final point, the God of Christmas is generous, he's just, and he has a long history of faithfulness. You see that upside-downness there again, filling the hungry with good things, the rich, the concept there, the full going away empty. And then again, this highlighting of the servant Israel. I mentioned this at the beginning, but I want to mention it here at the end. Israel was not chosen because they were the prettiest pony at the racetrack. Quite the opposite. They were a tiny, insignificant nation on the scope, on the landscape of history. And God says, those are my people. Some of us who are here tonight, you feel tiny, you feel insignificant, but if you've been chosen by God, there is no greater sense of value that you will know in this life. You may come along and you may feel like you have nothing to offer. Not much to say at work, not much to say at church, but if you belong to the God that is extolled in this passage, friends, 
what better words could you have to say than I belong to him? This God that chooses tiny, insignificant everybody's and makes them useful for his glory, he does the same thing today. And I guarantee, in fact, the scripture talks about this at times, <coughs> that people would have wondered after this promise that we see in Genesis 12, has he forgotten? What is he doing? It's been 2,000 years. Is he going to do something? And then right here in this story, and then what Galatians tells us later, in the fullness of time, he fulfills his promise. He fulfills his promise to Abraham. And surely, the ultimate blessing is seen. That Jesus Christ is sent from this tiny, insignificant nation. That from the absolute sawdust of history, he raises up this glorious cross in which Jesus pays for our sins. Friends, faithfulness is synonymous with our God. He uses that which is tiny and insignificant or insignificant in the eyes of the world, and he brings redemption for all who would believe. So let me ask this question tonight. As we've seen the greatness of who God is and what he does, knowing that he sees you in whatever humble estate you find yourselves, where do you most need his help? Where do you most need the reminder of the good news of the gospel? Where do you need to most preach the truth that he is mindful of your situation? Friends, wherever it is, let's go to him now and let's do just that. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are thankful to have heard the good news of Jesus through all that you say to us here in Mary's song. Lord, we are thankful for the reminder of the greatness of who you are and what you've done in Christ. Write on our hearts. Speak to us now in this time that we have before you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.